Welcome to Trunk Church. Come drink the blood of God with us. Bless you for being an angel Just when it seemed that heaven was not for me Right. Hello, I am Cosima B. Concordia, and I'm a writer who is currently working on building the transsexual empire. Um, yeah. <laughs> Amazing. And my name is Aurora. I'm an academic based in Chicago, and I'm currently working on corrupting the youth and furthering the gay agenda. Mm-hmm. <laughs> beautiful beautiful mm -hmm. i'm so glad yeah like i mean you, you get to literally corrupt them in the classroom that's so exciting oh i do i'm everything that the right fears about the radical left those kids don't have a chance nope, not at all <laughs> those 20 somethings <laughs> <sighs> all right so today we are going to be doing our third episode where we're using Oliver Davis and Tim Dean's polemic hatred of sex as a way to talk about why sex is such a slippery subject and also to cover a whole bunch of other theories that we've wanted to cover in this show. A nice little polemic against pop psychology mm -hmm. and secure attachments. <laughs> Yeah. Overly secured carceral attachments. So what did we go over last time, Aurora? So we discussed the relationship between queerness, queer theory, and sexuality, and how it steals itself against sex, how it does everything it can to avoid actually talking about sex, about actually thinking sex, even though Rubin says it's time to talk about sex or Foucault's polemic, tomorrow sex will be good again. It just seems like we're talking more and more about it. We're talking more about queerness. We're sexing everything. But at the same time, we're actually not doing exactly that. But it isn't a mobilization of the repression hypothesis. It's not that we're becoming more and more prude. It, it's integral to the way that sexuality functions in the society. Mm -hmm. That it's just structural to the very nature of sex, even though things like queer theory started with these very radical propositions and, and has returned to these very real grapplings with sex. It then is all too often, like in every other aspect of society, subsumed immediately into more stable projects. And so here we're looking at how to confront sex and all of that difficulty. Sex positivity has gone too far. It's made sex too positive. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. I think that's a... <laughs> you know, to go back to Bataille in our earlier episodes, his concept of the taboo as being fundamental to eroticism, I think for him, this idea of this kind of like sanitized sex positivity like wouldn't work for him at all because part of the reason that things are fun and good and desirable is because of the taboo aspect. And I know that's true for a lot of leather folk, myself included. Part of the reason what we do is 
fun and good and, and also feels deeply meaningful is because it's directly engaging with the taboo. And so sex positivity rally cries like yes means yes start to mean very little when what you're doing is you're pushing the boundaries of the appropriate and that's exactly where the sex that you're having is nested. And that's what makes it sexual or that's what makes the encounter the encounter. (laughs) It's probably a more poetic way to state that. No, it's good. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, there's also this idea that the laws, the legalistic norms through these like carceral feminist approaches to strengthen the bureaucratic nets of risk, it essentially like increases criminalization. So the corresponding norm of appropriate sexual relatedness that can be gleaned more readily from the many aberrant self-reports of sexual victimhood that have congregated beneath the banners of these two movements turn out to be somewhat retouched and updated version of the center of Rubens' charmed circle, long-term, monogamous, age-appropriate, emotionally intimate attachment. Homosexuality, certain prosthesis, pornography of the softer erotica type, provided it is not an addictive access, are no longer quite so stigmatizing, but the taboo on sadomasochism and the insistence on age appropriateness have intensified and been joined by the extremely flexible regulatory conception of addiction or wariness of compulsive sex, which implies, taken together with the ideal of emotional intimacy, that too much sex of any kind is suspect. In other words, It is occasional or infrequent sex in the context of a long-term, secure, intimate, emotionally rich, age-appropriate, and marriage-like relationship that is the new standard. And so their argument is that anything that falls outside of that, that the bureaucratic state creates standards to criminalize and restrict those forms of sexual activity in some way. Mm -hmm. And so... Interestingly enough, and I know I started these conversations and my first brush with their argument and their work was like hypercritical of Freud, but I revisited the studies on hysteria and Dora (laughs) and I was really shocked by the hatred of sex that is articulated by Freud and Brewer. Who is that? Okay, so... Joseph Brewer was a contemporary of Freud. I think he might have been a bit older, like a generation older. He's the one that coined autism. And he's one of the figures that was working on finding the cause of hysteria. Mm -hmm. So hysteria is something that is super, super old that people have been diagnosing forever. But it was kind of a catch-all. And no one had really Mm -hmm. known what the cause of it was they were like trying to find a root cause the feminine spirit (laughs) exactly the wandering uterus the ghost of the wandering uterus so they talk about how hysteria is a defense against sexuality but it has a lot to do with society's inability to talk about or confront sexuality they talk about how women are negatively impacted by repressing sexuality from their consciousness and This creates these somatic phenomena that fend off what is being repressed, like what is what is so uncomfortable to talk about. And I feel like they kind of blame doctors and such. So they say, and these are somewhat of a longer quote. 
So the tendency towards fending off what is sexual is further intensified by the fact that in young unmarried women, sensual excitation has an admixture of anxiety, a fear of what is coming, what is unknown and half-expected, whereas in normal and healthy young men, it is an unmixed aggressive instinct. So it's the self-policing that creates these anxieties, that creates a great deal of hysteria in puberty, in maturity. And when women suddenly have their first feelings of like sexual excitation, according to Freud and Brewer. And I will say that I think that this is very interesting from a literary and philosophical standpoint, but I also do think this is pseudoscience. <laughs> I want to put that out there, but it's nevertheless very interesting to discuss. And so they say, the girl senses in Eros the terrible power which governs and decides her destiny, and she is frightened by it. All the greater then is her inclination to look away and to repress from her consciousness the thing that frightens her. Marriage brings fresh sexual traumas. It is surprising that the wedding night does not have pathological effects more frequently, since unfortunately what it involves is so often not an erotic seduction, but a violation. But indeed, it is not rare to find in young women, in young married women hysterias which can be traced back to this and which vanish if in the course of time sexual enjoyment emerges and wipes out the trauma. Sexual traumas also occur in the later course of many marriages. Perverse demands made by the husband, unnatural practices, etc., lead them to conclude, and I like really want to quote this is their eye, I do not think I'm exaggerating when I assert that the great majority of severe neuroses in women have their origin in the marriage bed. And then they say, it is a most unfortunate thing that clinical medicine ignores one of the most important of all of the pathogenic factors, or at least only hints at it delicately. This is certainly a subject in which the acquired knowledge of experienced physicians should be communicated to their juniors, who as a rule blindly overlook sexuality at all events so far as their patients are concerned. So they're just like, hey, sex is important. It's affecting people. People are worried about it. They're afraid of it. Doctors need to think about it. <laughs> That's really fascinating. I'm glad that I revisited this. So the sexual needs of hysterical patients are no doubt just as variable in degree from individual to individual as in healthy people and are no stronger in them, but the former fall ill from them and for the most part precisely owing to struggling against them, owing to their defense against sexuality. So they assert that the great majority of severe neuroses in women have their origin in the marriage bed, and it's because women are unprepared to talk about or to expect sexuality because it's just this mysterious thing that they're told to fear. The sexual need of hysterical patients. What's so interesting about the fear of sexuality and its relationship to hysteria that Freud and Brewer are tracing is that they're making a case for individual hysteria, but Tim Dean and Oliver Davis are talking about a kind of societal hysteria that is rooted in a hatred and fear of sex. And they're diagnosing that psychoanalytically. And I think that that's really cool, actually. Mm, that's super interesting. Yeah. Huh. I think it's just a really imaginative use of Freud. Again, I don't think that it is Freud. I think it's them, but I think it's cool nonetheless. Because <laughs> I think Freud is a real fucking oddball. <laughs> yeah. So when you went back to Freud, how do you feel about the degenitalizing of sexuality as they talk about are found in Freud? I still don't understand how they could possibly say that that's 
what Freud does because it seems that he's tracing a a normative developmental account of how we should progress sexually and that's super important to how he diagnoses or how he identifies neuroses and he'll go so far as to tell people what it is that they think which is something that I don't think is attended to enough in this text given the critiques that are levied against attachment theory and against trauma theory as fair as those critiques are like there's a, a little bit of hypocrisy there I think mm-hmm well, so let me read these like little bits on okay. Freud and, and let me just get your reaction in comparison. <laughs> <laughs> okay. These non-genital regions of the body, Freud notes, appear to be claiming they should themselves be regarded and treated as genitals. By way of the unconscious, with its propensity for displacement, Freud moves sex around the body, revealing myriad contingencies evolved in genitalization, sex disorders, and reorders human anatomy. Despite popular misconceptions about Freudianism, psychoanalysis, in fact, deprioritizes the genitals with the theory of shattering as one consequence. Mm -hmm. And then another quote, where should the line between sexual and non-sexual be drawn? What if we were to concede that one of the most prominent characteristics of the sexual lies in its propensity for muddying lines, trespassing boundaries, and ruining formal integrity? The problem with Freud is not that he sees sex everywhere, but that his theory of the unconscious makes sex infinitely harder to delimit. Mm. So I like that, but if I were to go back to where they're getting this from... It's um it's kind of a lot. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. And it oh, I guess I'm going to get into Dora now. <laughs> yeah, 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 go for it. <laughs> oh my god. Uh so where they're getting this and it sounds so amazing the way that they're articulating it. It sounds and I almost say this tongue in cheek like it's liberatory even though I think they themselves are very critical of sex because it's liberatory. So he's saying like we need to be upfront about sexuality we need to talk about these so-called perversions which actually might not quite be perversions they might be something else so and this is from dora we must learn to speak without indignation of what we call sexual perversions instances in which the sexual function has extended its limits in respect either to the part of the body concerned or to the sexual object chosen the uncertainty in regard to the boundaries of what is to be called normal sexual life when we take different races and different epochs into account, shouldn't itself be enough to cool the zealot's ardor? So goes on to say, we surely ought not to forget the perversions, which is the most repellent to us. The sensual love of man for love was not only tolerated by a people so far, our superiors in cultivation, as were the Greeks, but was also actively entrusted by them with important social functions. The sexual life of each one of us extends to a slight degree now in this direction, now in that, beyond the narrow lines imposed as the standard of normalcy. The perversions are neither bestial nor degenerate in the emotional sense of the word. They are development of germs, all of which are contained in the undifferentiated sexual disposition of the child, and which by being suppressed or by being diverted to higher asexual aims, by being sublimated, are destined to provide the energy for a great number of our cultural achievements. So he's really pro-perversion. He's really, again, as you quoted, like pro this idea of sex at the limits and the sensual, the sexual, the erotic, just kind of traveling around the body. But 
then you have to step back and think about the context which this is coming from. And this is coming from his analysis of a woman named Dora who was suffering from hysteria. And he's trying to work through her neuroses. And in this particular case, she... Unfortunately, there's like a whole family history I have to get into. Her symptoms first occurred as a result of her having been sexually assaulted by a friend of her father's, who her father created the conditions that left her alone with this man because her father was carrying out an affair with this man's wife. And so Freud got her to talk about this experience. And rather than placing her neuroses in this experience, he says, well, actually... Her neuroses are also being manifest in this psychosomatic cough that she's exhibiting that spontaneously appears and disappears. So it can't just be this forced sexual act where she's repulsed by his unwanted kisses. And <laughs> he just assumes that the man, Hair K, I think is his name, rubbed his boner on her. And that also like created this frigid response. And so he's like, that's not enough to describe or to understand all of her neuroses we have to dive deeper and that's where he moves the sexual excitation the sexual response from the genitals to the other parts of the body so he's like okay so it's the throat why is the throat this way well it's because she got the unwanted kisses but it could be more what is it and so he goes through this whole thought process where it he decides it's because she's fixated on the possibility of her father who he decides that she thinks is impotent is getting blowjobs from hair k's wife and so she's has this cough and like this like sensations in the throat because she's just fixated on blowjobs and then she actually is in okay. love with the man that assaulted her <laughs> um, wow. but it goes even further because he's like but she's had these weird responses Oh shit, I got I missed a step. It's really a whole reveal. So she's assaulted. That doesn't explain her hysteria. She has this cough. The cough was before the assault. Like we know that she's probably in love with this man because the cough appears and disappears when he's not around. And so she longs for him so much that when he's gone, she just doesn't speak. <laughs> so there's that. And then he decides, well, because she has this cough and it happened before the assault. It's because she's thinking about fellatiating men. And it's because she's been in love with her father and she sucks her thumb because it's a like replication of the fantasy of this kind of intercourse. And she's always been a thumb sucker and she desires her dad. So he says, <laughs> I know it's looking weird. <laughs> Oh, okay, he says. He says, the less repellent of the so-called sexual perversions are very widely diffused among the whole population. <laughs> so it should not be wondered at that this hysterical girl of nearly 19, who had heard of the occurrence of such a method of sexual intercourse, sucking at the male organ, should have developed an unconscious fantasy of this sort and should have given it expression by an irritation in her throat and by coughing. Nor would it have been very extraordinary if she had arrived at such a fantasy, even without having any enlightenment from external sources, an occurrence which I have quite certainly observed in other patients. For in her case, a noteworthy fact afforded the necessary somatic prerequisite for this independent creation of a fantasy, which would coincide with the practices of perverts. And this is the fact that she's a thumbsucker. And that she 
is just <sighs> sucking her thumb and imagining that it's her father's penis. Because he goes on to say, quite um, assuredly. <laughs> so the inference is obvious that her affection for her father was much stronger than she knew or than she would have cared to admit. In fact, she was in love with him. So that's the problem with the degenitization is that like it seems really cool, but then it's like based in like this really fucked up case. Gotcha. <laughs> yeah, that's not ideal. Mm-hmm. No. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting. They also touch on this Foucault quote using different language, but in a similar way to the way that they're claiming like Freud degenitalizes. So the idea that S&M is related to a deep violence, that S&M practice is a way of liberating this violence, this aggression is stupid. We know very well what all those people are doing is not aggressive. They are inventing new possibilities of pleasure with strange parts of their body through the eroticization of the body. I think it's a kind of creation, a creative enterprise, which has one of its main features, what I call the desexualization of pleasure. So I think that, you know, degenitalization and desexualization. The idea that bodily pleasure should always come from sexual pleasure as the root of all our possible pleasure, I think that's something quite wrong. These practices are insisting that we can produce pleasure with very odd things, very strange part of our bodies in very unusual situations, and so on. And so as Davis and Dean point out in the book, the notion of producing pleasure with very strange parts of our bodies implies generating erotic pleasure with non-genital part of our bodies. This discussion of S&M makes the most sense when one understands Foucault to be using sexual as a synonym for genital. S&M practices move pleasure around the body, akin to how Freud's speculative theory moves pleasure around the body, such that genitalia become neither the primary nor the exclusive sites of pleasure. Mm-hmm. So I, I think in Foucault here, we, we have a means that's a little bit less of a fraught origin, perhaps. Yeah. Freud maybe produces a foundation with which to, again, stretch this idea of degenitalizing sex and eroticizing the body or sexualizing the body. But it also always goes down to sex and an appropriate way to do sex because he's also trying to find the most appropriate and articulate way to describe it and to get at the truth of it. He's still doing that. Mm-hmm, that's true. And there's still a kind of normalization and that's certainly something that feels very bureaucratic and feels like a kind of control. Yeah, no, I totally see that. You know, again, I think the things that I really love about hatred of sex, as Davis and Dean articulate it, coming out of both Rubin's diversifying of sexuality and then Bersani's insight that sex is inherently deplorable, the inherent deplorable nature of sex. And then just kind of bringing that all together in a way that I think, again, is like eerily similar to how Bataille and articulates eroticism. So here they say, in this book, we are adopting Ranciere's argument to suggest that hatred of sex is likewise as old as sex itself, that hating sex accompanies sex and seeks to cover over something vital about it, a foundational impropriety upon which rest all attempts to comprehend what is sexually appropriate. We suggest that the scrambling messiness of sex can never be entirely covered over by hating it, or for that matter, by trying to love it. There will always be something awkward, intractable, gauche, upsetting, and disturbing, 
what was once called queer about sex that cannot be entirely sanitized within a regime of safety and appropriateness, however benign or coercive. Mm. And so in that, sex also has this quality to it that is fundamentally dangerous and fundamentally something that a bureaucracy and government attempts to control is always going to want to squash and control and subsume into other things to make it into something that can be more easily controlled. So now I'm like, I'm thinking of what their response to my critique of the use of Freud. And so my critique is that I think that he treated his patients terribly. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And that I think that he was profoundly sexist and ultimately like profoundly homophobic even though he says like oh think about the greeks like they were they were homosexuals and they're far superior but like ultimately he did think that that was not normal so their critique of my critique of freud would be that i'm being carceral or i'm worried about who he was ethically as a person that i'm so concerned about what these despicable things he was doing that i'm letting it get in the way of what his work is doing Mm-hmm. And I think that that's worth just flagging. I think that that would be their response. And I'm not sure exactly how I would get around that critique. Okay. <laughs> I don't, yeah. Cool. I don't know if that's useful. Um, the interesting thing where we're coming out of this is that the meat of what they're saying and I think what we're agreeing with, they're very similar. Yeah. Like, I don't think either of us are disagreeing on any real crucial way. You just have... Oh, not at all. Minor problems about, like, how we talk about the origin. Yep. Like, how we got here, (laughs) as opposed to, like, the actual place we're at. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. Well, and it it goes back to, yeah, the who we want as founding fathers. Who do we want to cite? Who do we want to work with? Mm -hmm. well and also like even if we can say we don't want freud as our founding father say we want you know we want someone else as our founding father we still don't want them to be founding fathers in the way that we think of founding fathers as as people that we need to have some sort of loyalty towards which i think is all too often the way that that is conceptualized Mm -hmm. they fundamentally need to be figures that we feel very comfortable blaspheming and killing and pissing on if we need to you know (laughs) like pissing on (laughs) i think that's important i think that's important because the the second where you can't do that within any sort of theoretical tradition you create a a closed system that isn't able to meaningfully think itself outside of very set bounds yeah it's a weird kind of nation building project like and i know that i use that metaphor a lot like i'm really worried about homonationalism and like drawing lines in the sand and things like ossifying but like and i guess we're about to talk about governmentality so this is super appropriate and like this notion of like securing borders but somehow this liberal ideal of too big to fail i think ends up creeping into academic spaces or creeping into theory or creeping into activism it's like no that person is so important that you can't critique them like they're too too big to fail and it's always people that are otherwise like in positions of power so it's figures like freud who he's not going away like me 
making fun of him or me just saying like man everything he's written about dora is like pretty fucked up or we've got these little tidbits next to like really weird creepy profound assumptions that are being made about someone's interpersonal life <laughs> and about the relationship between thumb sucking and sucking on an udder and a nipple and a penis like he really goes into detail on that kind of stuff <laughs> you have to really start to psychoanalyze him like what are you thinking about what you doing um, buddy but what's that cigar doing is that cigar a cigar (laughs) (laughs) like yeah his theory uh, applies to everyone except for him um and yes i feel like psychoanalysis like they don't like to look at him as much as they should it'll come up that he had like a young a beautiful young mother and a father figure that he hated but then they kind of leave it there (laughs) Hmm. but yeah too big to fail i know we've personally spoken at length about this in activism circles or in social circles where there's the cishet like abuser usually white who's a big enough deal or important enough that we don't call them out we call out the people that are calling them out or calling them in where and that's usually by scapegoating a trans woman or a woman of color yeah it's always interesting to see like how quote-unquote allegations of things that are often very like very low-key and like not anything like lots of these like cishet white dudes are being accused of often get completely ostracized just for like being weird or uncomfortable you know all these like very wit vague accusations but then like really genuine like horrible rape and assaults like very cut and dry there's often fucking white dudes still in positions of relative power and it's like huh i wonder i wonder Mm. why it works that way it's almost like carcerality functions to just punish the most (laughs) vulnerable and Mm. not actually enforce the kind of justice that it pretends it does as though absolutely yeah and it's like we can justice that is enforceable (laughs) yeah and it's like leftists can look at like the you know structure of prisons and i think it's very obvious to us that it's like oh huh marginalized people sure are punished uh at a much higher rate than other people like specifically like black folks but then when you like actually take that into how like discipline and punish like functions outside of the prison system and these systems that you know like people convince themselves that oh these areas are different it's like is it like look at how these are playing out (laughs) yep yeah look at how like the category of sex crime and pervert it's always been a a queer category yeah absolutely i mean most beautifully illustrated and how um there are some right-wing hosts that you know i won't maybe specifically name in case they're litigious but you know who have come out and straight up say that that like girls should be married at like 16 and shit and it's when they're like most fertile and all of this fucked up shit and um yeah but then they're also the people accusing like trans and queer people of grooming children just for like existing and telling kids that they like can be queer or trans if they are you know or want to be <laughs> like Jesus Christ. I think you can see how those structures as they exist within our subconscious are like very baked into these like very normative ideals. And so the further you are away from that normative ideal, mm-hmm. the easier it is for people to imagine that you fall into X category of deviant or monster mm-hmm. or predator. Yeah. The thing that 
confuses me about or something that I've been thinking a lot about is the limits of autonomy as a concept because I think that's another concept that ends up being consumed like within a really weird legal within a really weird liberal framework where it's those fucking creeps (laughs) mobilizing autonomy to justify their pedophilic urges so that's autonomy to them but it's also under conditions where autonomy couldn't possibly exist because it's an older person foisting their sexual desires onto a younger person yeah who then they're forcing into this particular future of you're gonna get married and have lots of babies you gotta do it now because you're most fertile and then but for them, there's like the idea of a a trans child who like knows their body being able to say for themselves, like for them, that couldn't be autonomy or autonomy is unthinkable. And I just I wonder if autonomy has just been ruined to such an extent that maybe it just is unthinkable. Yeah. There. Maybe it is just another concept that's been stolen from us. And I think about that a lot. It's also just a fundamental, like, the structure of the family is one in which children are, like, literally Mm -hmm. possessions of their parents. You know, they're not, like, do not have human rights in the sense that, like, adults do. And, you know, like, Sophie Lewis talks about this a lot in her work on abolishing the family. But also, I think it was a trans woman and really fantastic horror writer, Gretchen Felker-Martin, recently was writing about how she's noticed that in a lot of ways the turf movement seems similar to how like a lot of cis men have freaked out about like the growing autonomy Mm -hmm. of women by you know like clamping down on these like misogynistic laws and having like creating moral panics about it in a similar way the transphobic backlash of today can be seen as white women having a, a moral panic about losing their control over children Mm. because like cis white women like the ability to control their children and to have complete decision making power you know of like the idea of you know motherhood is sacred and the family is sacred the goddess is sacred the idea that your child could be something that you don't want them to be feels like a fundamental attack on this ability basically to control and abuse your child you know and like make your child Mm -hmm. whatever you want them to be in the same way that men felt attacked by like oh like you don't own your wife and like you can't just like abuse your wife (laughs) same basic structure yeah i mean i'm sure that we're gonna do a whole history of the transgender child and like just childhood as a concept because that's a really new concept we're still trying to understand how children have rights or if they have rights well i mean that's the whole thing with jules gill peterson's work is is that the trans child is not a new concept Mm -hmm. um but we're always acting as if it's a brand new concept even though it's been around forever and talk about it as if it's just existed as a way to constantly be like oh there's no research there's no precedent for this you know like all the evil transsexuals are transing children out of nowhere and it's like no that's interesting what i mean as childhood as a new concept is the idea that children weren't just little mini adults that were under the full authority of their parents like (laughs) but then that childhood wasn't this special thing that ought to be protected and fostered. So things like play or things like specific educational development that people now think are important and necessary for children, like that's a new concept. Mm -hmm. So protections against 
like eight hour work days <laughs> and stuff. Wait, or... are you saying that children shouldn't be forced to work? Aurora, are we an anti-work podcast? <laughs> we are an anti-work podcast. We're coming out as an anti-work <laughs> podcast <laughs> for everyone, including children. <laughs> I think it's really fascinating just like how during like the early 1900s you had children that spent their entire day in little factories because their pliable little fingers were so good for the machinery mm -hmm. <laughs> or there were children or people that spent most of their lives underground in mines and there still are like this is these are only like i'm i'm speaking to like a western concept of of child and childhood that is also like a liberal concept and it's like it has <laughs> benefits and problems and certainly we enjoy a lot of the privileges in the global north that we do because we're exploiting children in the global south but and i digress um yeah there's just like yeah cases of children that spent their entire lives most of their lives like just in mines because they were so good at crawling through mine shafts <laughs> and their pregnant mothers would just kind of give birth and like carry the baby around in the mine shaft it was fucking wild yeah. it's really crazy um, or <laughs> you know i'm gonna pitch this to what was the the book publisher that did the provocations i want to do one that's hatred of children because mm, i really mm -hmm. think that we hate children. yeah university of nebraska press if you're listening mm -hmm. yeah. get at get aurora Layborn. <laughs> the child's welfare movement grew out of the victorian era animal welfare movement that's when we decided Maybe parents shouldn't be allowed to just beat their children. Yeah, like dogs have rights. I guess children should maybe have rights. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Jesus Christ. Because <laughs> there's also a shift in how we saw our animals as people started seeing them as extensions of like their family and as a, like versus as mm -hmm. noble servants. So people have done research about shifting trends and naming dogs and in like dog burials. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's just like. And now the right wing are doing like moral panics around the fact that young people like ourselves are calling our pets like our children. <laughs> what? <laughs> Have you not seen this? Where they're like, no. yeah, where they're like, oh, you know, like this is the degradation of society that they're like not having actual children and instead they're treating their dog like a child. It's like, I'm sorry that my dog is literally my child and I did biologically birth him from my womb. That's not my fault. That's just science. Mm. It's just nature, baby. <laughs> it's just nature, baby. Yeah. So <laughs> that was a really good tangent. I'm glad we went down those paths. Um, okay. So rewind. Um, uh, where, are we, where are we at? Uh, degeneralization uh, uh, liberal uh, carceral yeah we were talking about liberal carceral feminism and liberal carceral queers and that discourse just gets weaponized against the people that it's supposedly supposed to protect or be there for so security doesn't actually help anyone or protect anyone like it it secures something but it's more so in a in the sense that it binds people like it secures them like as a kind of maximum security <laughs> structure would yeah 
as Oliver Davis and Tim Dean put it, our claim is that the once principled liberal feminist activism against sexual abuse and sexual violence has been co-opted by the anti-democratic project of governance, which is hollowing out liberal democracies, termite-like. <laughs> <laughs> like to continue on from there, when officials and politicians accede to activist demands to guarantee more sexual safety, this move tightens the hold of bureaucracies of risk, which construct all sex and all subjects as potentially dangerous in a way that appears to justify the unending expansion and intensification of these very matrices of control. Mm And I know like a lot of leftist podcasts and and other folks have like done really good. Like I know you're wrong about also has like talked about uh, the victims rights movement and how mm-hmm. and how lots of these legal movements that started with like these really good intentions then ended up creating this framework that just strengthened our fucking legal system and gave them more ways to prosecute marginalized people. And um, the same thing can be said for hate crime legislation, you know, where lots of the time it is used to like more marginalized people and very rarely is it actually like effectively used to protect marginalized people. Mm -hmm. And this is the problem with reformism is that it ends up just giving more money to the systems that are harming us while leaving the fundamental structure intact. And then they can just harm us in new and effective and slightly more concealed ways. <laughs> mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, I'm just thinking about how it, like all those movements start grassroots and like very community oriented and as non-hierarchical as they can be. And it ends up dispersing knowledge or finding new outlets for knowledge (laughs) and then suddenly the like the structure that usually that grassroots movement was created to critique or subvert like rolls in and says like well actually we're going to be better we're going to be the better authority figure like it's better if we handle this and then that's the implication like the bureaucratic takeover yeah or like the idea of administering power like um administering power now actively presumes that at any moment any one of us is at risk either of perpetrating sexual misconduct or of becoming a victim of it so each of us must now be continuously monitored guided and if necessary corrected or protected by an apparatus of intensive oversight and intervention that is striving to become ever more efficient ever more vigilant, resourceful, and controlling across all dominions of human experience. And again, as we said earlier, this all comes back to Gail Rubin's idea of the charmed circle. Long-term monogamous, age-appropriate, emotionally intimate attachment is kind of the basis on against which all things are judged, and that may shift over time. Some types of sexuality may be less policed than they used to be as they exit the taboo in the way that they used to be considered. But still, the more you exist outside of those matrices, the more likely you are to be policed and punished. So, which means like gay people having vanilla gay sex are more likely to fall victim to those matrices of power and control than like nice straight people doing like kinky sex. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because you're already marked as other. You're already marked as being incapable of doing the vanilla thing. So it's a gotcha moment where it 
yeah. you have to uh, sublimate all the parts of yourself that make you other in order to fit in, in order to join the whole. <laughs> yeah. Well, like the, the whole thing, like looking at, you know, like part of the moral panic is around drag queen story hour, you know, in uh, like conservative states. And so then, you know, there's like armed Republican or like right wing militia, like showing up and like threatening the lives of people that attend and, and also threatening the parents of, of the queer kids that go or just the kids that go to these um, drag queen story hours. And then, you know, the like some of states have proposed these bills to ban drag queens being around children, like a fundamental ban of there being any sort of performance like that, which inherently is sexualizing drag queens, right? Like to be a drag queen is to be doing something sexual. And then of course, for these motherfuckers, like every trans woman is a drag queen to them because they don't make those distinctions. Like cross-dressing is the act. That's the problem is that for them, trans women's existence is inherently sexual if we're just walking down the street so then it gets really fucking murky really fast and then us just existing in public space justifies you know violence because then that is that is an act of exposing children to sexuality or perversion or whatever they want to however they want to spin it jesus christ yeah it's grim. We're in grim and interesting times. I think some people are responding to that by trying to retreat and, you know, make themselves as assimilationist as possible, you know, trying to become the good tran or the good queer. But like the reality is that's never going to work for you. As we talked about in our fantasy is death episode, like like it's super hard to be queer and a Nazi, but some people are stupid enough to try. And I'm sure, you know, <laughs> the more fascism rises in the US and different parts of the world, we will see plenty of queer and trans fascists, even if they don't self-identify that way. But like once they get rid of us, they're going to get rid of you too. Like that's just how it goes. So you might as well be exactly who you want to be because they're going to hate you anyway. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I have a quote that defines governmentality. It might be useful because you're being tricked into doing something for your own good, for the good of society, for the mm-hmm. good of your community. Like you're being coerced into being vanilla, <laughs> into fitting into your little identity box. And for your own good and it's your idea and how they manage to do that and it's under this notion of governmentality and so this is from an article that i pulled from anthropologia by tiana murray lee and it's called governmentality i think it's very well written so it says Defined succinctly as conduct of conduct, governmentality is an attempt to shape human conduct by calculated means. So its purpose is to secure the welfare of a population, the improvement of its condition, the increase of its wealth, longevity, health, etc., etc. To achieve this purpose requires distinctive means. At the level of population, it is not possible to coerce every individual and regulate their actions in minute detail. Rather, Government operates by educating desires and configuring habits, aspirations, and beliefs. It sets conditions, arranging things so that people following only their own self-interest will do as they ought. 
I like that. It's the way that liberalism ends up like co-opting notions like autonomy. Like there's this Trojan horse thing that's happening. It's like, this is what you want. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's that new interview um, where Jon Stewart interviews like some governor of one of the states that's really persecuting trans kids really badly. And Jon Stewart has like a long history of like being really fucking transphobic. And, and so, so, you know, it's kind of mixed that he's the one that's like coming out with this like good interview. But it's also good to see growth, I guess, you know, bare minimum, the, the bar is in hell. But that he does just like really put her feet to the fire and does the basic journalistic job that it seems like all of the journalists from, you know, like the New York Times and everywhere else seem to be continually failing at or like just holding them to like, well, why shouldn't parents be able to choose? Like, this is already a choice. Like, what the fuck? Why are you trying to stop parent choice? Like, you can't have it both ways. You know, on the show, we certainly have radical ideas around autonomy and around children should be able to get access to gender affirming care without parents' consent. <laughs> but the thing is, is that that's not even what's being argued here, what's being argued and what like, you know, John Stewart is, is being applauded for is literally just if you are really so like pro family and pro the parent, why are you trying to criminalize parents and providers that are choosing that for their children? Like after all of this very long, exhaustive process, <laughs> like that seems suspicious. It seems like you're not actually believing autonomy for the parent. You want parents to make a very specific choice that aligns with a very specific idea of the family and the child. So maybe autonomy wins out after all. <laughs> maybe that's my, my thing is I'm just jaded. Oh, no. I mean, also what I'm saying here is that autonomy isn't winning. Yeah. Like Jon Stewart being paraded as this, you know, super pro trans like hero for just being a cis dude that is competently saying things that trans people are saying all the time. Yeah. Um, and is also literally just arguing that parents should have basic rights. <laughs> and so that's not even autonomy. It's still saying that parents should have complete control over their children. Right. That's not even challenging all of the parents that say fuck you to their children, deny them care. And then they kill themselves because they don't have access to care. Like within that framework, the farthest thinking liberal framework completely can't imagine help for those kids in any meaningful way. No, because it's just the perfect storm of a class that's just not recognized as human. We don't know how to think about children as human. And then we've never extended the category of human like to trans folks. Yeah. All right, so now time for confessions. Aurora, will you start us off? Mm -hmm. So I scrubbed the toilets with my ex's toothbrush in a moment of anger and insanity. Yeah, I mean, that mm -hmm. seems like a classic movie one. I feel like I've only seen that in movies. I've never actually heard anyone having done that. But um... Well, I wonder if it was like after they'd broken up, you had this toothbrush and it's just like this symbol of what was lost <laughs> or this symbol of a thing that they had moved into your space and you just like, couldn't quite bring yourself to throw it away but you can't just be hanging on to their toothbrush like it's a very intimate item and so like what are you gonna do 
you're going to just have this moment where you just psychologically break and you just clean your bathroom with your toothbrush. It's never going to be used again anyway. It's just it's just yeah. the, the good symbolic cleansing. Yeah, exactly. And it turns into like a literal cleansing. I feel like that's not what was intended here, but I'll I'm uh, going to I'm going to say that that's what it was. I like it. I like your interpretation. Yeah. I mean I could also just be projecting from a personal experience. <laughs> Good for you, Aurora. Good for you. Cleanse that space. And someone like just move in a toothbrush. The audacity of leaving a toothbrush in my apartment. And then things did not end on good terms. And so it's like, yeah, I'm going to repurpose this in a moment of anger and insanity. <laughs> Incredible. Yeah. Okay. Um, even though my parents are accepting, I don't think I can truly be myself until I move out. I think we've actually gotten one like this in the past, but I think that this is really common. I think that no matter how accepting your parents are, like living with your parents, it's very hard to come into your own. Like you're surrounded by the narrative threads of the people around you that you grew up with. I mean, it's very hard to just be around people that all knew you pre-transition, honestly. Maybe you're just queer. You don't actually say that you're trans here. But like queerness as well, probably. I don't know if there's such a thing as truly being yourself, but there's something that is just so incredible about having your own space that you can just fill with your own things and move about however you want and that like you are the... I don't know, omnipotent god of a space that's like <laughs> your own. And there's just something about that that is, I think, just so important to you know, developing as a human being. Everyone should have their own space, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Like for me, until I lived abroad for a few years and was almost around, except for you know, partner, like I was around no one for two and a half years that I grew up with or that knew me. Like that was what really helped me get to the place where I decided I had to transition. And that was partially by like not having these set ways of being. And I think that's also why the pandemic has broken so many eggs. So, so many more queer and trans people now, just because people had a few less eyes on them for a couple of years. Okay. So I have this one. I am too scared to kiss someone. <laughs> yeah. That could mean lots of different things. Are you too scared to kiss a particular someone or too scared to kiss anyone? Yeah. I mean, I feel like the someone implies that it's just the idea of kissing anyone is the thing that is mm -hmm. scary. And I mean, yeah, I, I can imagine if you haven't kissed someone, that kissing someone could be really, just the idea of kissing anyone could be really scary. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I think it's also, it's a very strange time to be kissing people, too, for a couple of different reasons. I'm going to unpack this and be a little unhinged. Uh, so post-pandemic, <laughs> post-pandemic, it's kind of strange to think about kissing people. Didn't Fauci say the handshake is dead? So intimacy is very strange, kind of scary to think about. So there's that risk. Suddenly kissing is risky in a way it's never been before. But I think also... And yet we persist to spit in each other's mouths. Spit in my mouth. <laughs> As God intended. Yeah, that's all, I'm, that's all I'm asking. I'm once again asking. <laughs> <For evil. laughs> um, so, and then there's also, I think, it's confusing to come up in this, like, hyper-carceral, vigilant 
about a very weaponized notion of bodily autonomy, of what it means to safely initiate something or initiate something without just the fear of a rejection, which is already something you want to shield your little ego against. Rejection sucks. But a fear of being made into a sex pest or into a creep. That's a lot to navigate. Yeah. And especially when the whole state has moved, you know, the responsibility of COVID from the state onto the individual and instead of doing anything systemic to actually protect us. Uh Like, yeah, that's, that's a lot. Kissing. So I get it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay, next one. Had park sex with a hot dyke on a fallen tree and I lost my rosary. I think a magpie has it now. This could be a short story. Like, this should be submitted to the Hemingway short story contest. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah, beautiful. Rosary, never worn. <laughs> Magpie. Magpie stole it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, that sounds really... Um, beautiful and hot and the magpie at the end really ties it together it's it's nice um i'm glad you had had Mm -hmm. good good park sex and i hope that the rosary you know wasn't too much of a loss it's a sacrifice or an offering Mm -hmm. yeah okay so i am sinless and perfect fuck off no you're not i know (laughs) literally no one is sinless or perfect like we literally did a whole fucking thing about how that's like literally fascism like go to hell yeah fuck off boring how come i love that you get all the horny ones this time (laughs) yeah that's true that's true (laughs) the non-horny ones i see what this is about Um, yeah well so it's like you know like in game of thrones where like the nun or whatever has the bell and then cersei has to like strip naked and like walk through the town and like and they say like shame shame like that's how i feel about this one like absolutely not the only sin is saying you are sinless (laughs) Mm -hmm. sins are also fun yeah no i just like created a problem for myself i'm trying to think of a sinless pleasure i'm like okay but we want to like degeneralize sexuality and so we can think about eroticism and pleasures and all these like non-sinning ways okay fine uh but still oh my god (laughs) it's the principle of the matter (laughs) um yeah that's that's fair okay last one i have a soft spot for cnc or consensual non-consent but also can't handle it at all Mm -hmm. The cool thing about negotiating those sorts of relationships is that they're yours to negotiate. So you could negotiate a version of it that suits your soft spot. You know? Right? (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, consensual non-consent, it's a difficult area to traverse. We are eventually planning on doing a whole episode on it. But that that makes sense that it would be difficult. Mm -hmm. And that is very normal. All right. Well, think you all so much for listening we will back next week with even more conversations around hatred of sex and if you would like to continue to support our show and keep it ad free and just you know keep us chugging along we are at www.patreon.com slash drunk church And you can also follow us on Instagram. You can follow our individual Twitters. And uh, 
You can get at us and um, nice things. Yeah. <laughs> get get at us. Yeah. Tell us what's up. Tell us how you like the show. Um, rate, rate, subscribe. All yeah, all the good stuff. <laughs> but like, actually, get at us. Like, I'm always really excited to read comments or reactions. Yeah. Sometimes people give us like paragraphs on paragraphs about like what they're thinking and you may feel weird doing that, but we actually like really like it. And like, Mm -hmm. you know, if we hate it, we don't have to like respond, but like (laughs) promise that it will, that it will be great. And, and we like it when you um, give us your vibes. And that's kind of the whole point. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Okay, well, God bless. May a magpie steal your rosary. Steal your rosary. (laughs) (laughs) Bless you for being an angel. Just when it seemed that heaven was not for me. Bless you for building a new dream Just when my old dream crumbled so heavily